The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Kidwell. I am the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. So glad to have you all uh, here this morning to our guests and visitors Thank you for joining us this morning. I was reflecting this week as I was preparing the message, just what an honor and a joy it is to get to dig into God's Word and to do that together with you. So thank you for entrusting me with that task each week as we dive into God's Word. And I was even just thinking with our, our message this morning and next week, they're a bit heavier messages, but I'm, I'm grateful for the full counsel of the Word of God. And as we walk through whole books of the Bible, we're going through the book of Matthew, we encounter lots of different topics, and the Lord confronts lots of different situations and things in our hearts, and we have nowhere to hide from that. So I'm, I'm glad for that, and that we together uh, value and cherish God's Word and walk through that together. So this week, we are picking back up in our Matthew series. We're still in chapter 12. And our next four sermons all have a thematic link to them, going through chapters 12 and 13. Once again, pressing us to consider, how do we respond to Christ? Week after week, we've been learning glorious truth after glorious truth. We've encountered miracle after miracle. We've seen proof text after proof text that Jesus has a rightful claim to the messianic throne. And so Matthew uses Christ's words in these chapters to remind us that we can't simply be casual observers of all of this. We'll either choose to follow Christ or reject Him. There's no in-between. And so this week and the next few, we'll look at the heart that refuses Christ, the heart that receives Christ, and the consequences of both of those things. Well, in our passage this week, we're going to see yet again the Pharisees confronting Jesus, this time over a man who is freed from demonic possession. And yet again, we see them putting Jesus to the test. And Jesus, his response to them, makes clear that the games that they are playing are dangerous. The premise of our message today is simple. To refuse Christ is to reject God, and to reject God is to face condemnation. So please, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, where we will be reading verses 22 through 45. Let me pray for us before we read. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Spirit we thank you that you have given us your word, and we ask by the power of your spirit that you would help us to understand your word this morning, help us to receive it. The, the warnings that you have given us in your word, I pray that they would have their intended effect on our hearts. I pray that you would hem us in and keep us close to you. For those here who may not know you, Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to draw them close to break down barriers, and to show them the way of salvation. Lord, thank you for your Son. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Matthew 12. Then a demon-oppressed man 
who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons, oh, let me see. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks." The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, yet again, we have a lot going on here. Our message might be a little longer this morning than normal, but we're going to tie it all together. We encounter the infamous unforgivable sin. We have many Old Testament illusions. We get stern reminders about what our actions show of our hearts. 
And we even have this interesting bit about demons in dry places and swept houses. And the reason that we're discussing this string of passages all together is because they're all serving the same purpose, illuminating for us the danger and folly of rejecting Jesus Christ. Our message this morning is largely set in this passage, and Jesus' address is largely set in the context of those who have heard the good news of Christ. We are all are guilty of sin before God. Whether we've heard of Jesus and his offer of salvation or not, we stand before God condemned for rejecting him. The scriptures make clear, the heavens declare the glory of God. All of us are without excuse. However, Jesus this morning is reminding us of the increased judgment faced for those who have heard this teaching, those who have seen his miracles, those like the Pharisees who were aware of and expecting the coming Messiah. He's speaking to those who have a degree of illumination to the reality of who he is, yet still in their hearts resolve to disown him. And while both the unrepentant person who's never heard the name of Christ and the person who has heard the name of Christ yet rejects him fully deserve the wrath of God for turning their back on him. Both have spurned God in their sin and rebellion. God makes clear it's a dangerous place you are in if you've learned of Christ and the gracious salvation that he offers, long been exposed to his mercy and yet rejected him. Such a person reveals a hardness of heart that leads to greater condemnation and even greater corruption. So we're going to take each of these little vignettes. There's four sections here from our passage on their own and see how they all work together. And we're going to discover that the heart that refuses Christ sets itself against God, is evil within is unappeasable and is vulnerable to greater attack. There's some passages in Scripture that are primarily warnings, and this is one of them. And there's a warning for all of us in this passage. If you know Christ, may you never grow cold towards Him. If you've heard the gospel and been made aware of Christ, yet reject Him, our passage this morning would hope to shake you out of that dangerous place. And if you've never heard of Christ before, you will this morning. And I pray that these warnings and the light of the glory of this Christ will help you to receive Him and trust Him because He's good. So the first thing we see, we see that the heart that refuses Christ sets itself Against God. This will be the longest of our points because it's the basis for the rest of them. We get the setup for this first vignette with a demon oppressed, blind, and mute man being brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. And we know from context that this healing involved driving that demon out. Now, exorcism was not an uncommon thing in Jesus' day. It was a practice that the Pharisees had a category for and even approved of. It's something that the people would have been aware of, but what they saw in Jesus 
was something different. Surely the sheer number of people that Jesus was loosing from demonic strongholds and the number of people that he healed stood as a testimony that something unique was going on here. It drew their attention. Also, it's likely that they were taken aback by his approach. The exorcists at the time used ritualistic practices to deal with evil spirits. Jesus didn't pull out any holy objects. He didn't chant any specific words. He didn't prep himself beforehand. His command, his words were simply enough. Laying a hand on someone, speaking to someone, declaring someone healed who wasn't even present. All of these were the operating mode of the Lord. His power was unique and undeniable. Yet, even though this power had been revealed, the people still wondered. They asked, can this be the son of David? That's a clear reference to the Messiah that they were waiting for. They weren't certain yet that he was the one, perhaps because the manner of his coming still didn't fit their expectations. We're not sure, but they they couldn't deny his power, and they couldn't deny that it lined up with the works prophesied to be done when the Messiah came. So the people wondered. Yet the Pharisees, these Pharisees at least, weren't wondering. The Pharisees were decided. Jesus was not the Messiah. They came to this conclusion not because Jesus' works were unconvincing, not because they were seeking God and being cautious, but we know from elsewhere they decided he was not the Messiah because they didn't want him to be. Jesus as Messiah would disrupt their system. It meant he was right and that they had much to repent of. And it meant that the power that they so desperately clung to could be taken from them. Yet as much as they wanted to write him off, they had to deal with what was happening before their eyes. They couldn't deny his power and the people were starting to get wise. They were starting to question, is this the one? And so from the Pharisees' perspective, Jesus had to be squashed. So if they couldn't deny his power... They had to challenge its source. And in so doing, they actually wind up putting themselves on the hot seat rather than Jesus. It is only by Beelzebul, a name some would call Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. You have to hand it to them. Go big or go home. If you're going to charge Jesus with being in league with dark forces, why not go right to the top and say he's in cahoots with the devil? Well, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knew their motivations, and he addresses this ludicrous charge. He refutes them by reminding them that Satan is not an idiot. He's a clever tactician. And as a clever and crafty warrior, he would be working against himself by doing the things that Jesus was doing. Why would Satan be sending forces to attack his own forces? No one in a war sends their own soldiers to attack their own soldiers. Yet this is exactly what the Pharisees were claiming that Satan was doing through Jesus. The breadth 
and the frequency and the power of attack that Jesus was having on the demonic powers of the age was astonishing. The people marveled at it. And if Satan were behind it, it would be like the United States of America in the middle of a war dropping nuclear bombs on New York, Chicago, L.A., Atlanta. Why would we do that? The damage that the U.S. would be doing to itself would be irreversible and would, as verse 25 says, be laid waste. No, Jesus says, I am not casting out demons in the name and power of Satan. And if I were, then, as he says in verse 27, your own sons who cast out demons would be doing so by the same power, yet you don't charge them of the same crime. A crime which we should say was punishable by death, according to the Jewish teachers. Dark magic, collusion with Satan, that was a capital offense. So this is a very, very serious accusation that they are bringing against Jesus. Jesus says, this is ridiculous. You're grasping at straws. But he doesn't stop there. He uses this as an opportunity to force the Pharisees to evaluate their own position. To ask themselves whose side they are on. He essentially says, I'm not in cahoots with Satan. But you're right. I do cast out demons. I do work wonders and I have powers. And as you've pointed out, there are only two sources for such things. Powers such as these either come from God or they come from the spiritual forces of evil. There's no in-between. And I want to make a quick aside. That is true even today. We live in an age with an increase in mystic practices. Crystals, channeling energies, incantations, witchcraft. It's on the rise in America. And no matter how those things get packaged, any power, any spiritual offering, any force that works apart from Jesus Christ is satanic and demonic. Such forces want nothing to do with the God of the universe. In the cosmic economy of our world, there are only two sides. And Jesus makes clear which side he is on. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, if I'm not doing this by the power of Satan, which, as I've said, is absurd, then I am doing this by the power of the Spirit of God. And if I'm doing this by the power of the Spirit of God, then that means that the kingdom of God has come upon you at last. Because when the kingdom comes, it was prophesied that captives would be set free. The enemies of God would be thwarted, and that is what I have done, Jesus says. I've entered the strong man's house, Satan's domain, the prince of the power of the air, who's ruled over the earth through sin and terror, and my works have clearly shown that I am stronger. I've bound him and his lackeys, and I'm plundering his house and taking his goods. And let's stop there for a minute. Don't miss what this means. This imagery is beautiful. What is Jesus plundering? What are the goods that he's taking? People. 
He's taking people from out of Satan's hand. He is, as Colossians says, delivering people from the domain of darkness into his glorious kingdom of light, a kingdom of redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus is plundering in the strong man's house. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. What are you doing? You're either with me in this war or you're against me. Jesus doesn't say, whoever's not with me hopefully does some good works, though, and still is a good person. He doesn't say, whoever's not with me hopefully doesn't dabble in pagan practices and witchcraft. Whoever's not with me hopefully doesn't call upon Satan and his forces. No, he says, whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He says to these Pharisees, by opposing me, you're against me. And if you're against me, you're against God himself. He then drives home the point to these men with this mention of the unforgivable sin. He says, you've heard my preaching. You've heard the truths that I have spoken. You've seen the mighty things done by my hand in the power of the Spirit, and yet you harden your hearts and you refuse to believe. You're walking on very dangerous ground. You've set yourself up in total opposition to God and are in danger of, if not already, actively blaspheming the Holy Spirit. As a kid, I used to be very scared of this verse, and I'm sure others have in the room as well, always wondering, what if I do the unforgivable sin? And you may have heard a similar response that I received, which is the true response. If you're worried about it, you haven't done it. What Jesus is saying is that when we encounter Christ, when God has made the works of his hands so clear and evident, and the Spirit of God has revealed himself to us time and time again, we stand without excuse if we refuse to accept him. And if we do so, we're no longer ignorant children unaware of the grace that's available to us. We are no longer blinded sinners stumbling around without an offering of grace. We are people, as Hebrews says in chapter 6, who have come once, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. These Pharisees had done that. They had tasted. They had seen. They had been around the miraculous working of God through Jesus Christ, and yet they turned from Him. In such cases, we no longer walk in ignorance. We walk in such blasphemous hard-heartedness that there remains no more an offering of repentance. Not meaning that if we wanted to repent, we couldn't, but meaning our hard hearts reveal that God has completely given us over to our rebellion. Now, we don't walk around deciding who has or has not blasphemed God in this way. We couldn't possibly know that. We only pray and we hope that it is not true of any person that we meet. And we never treat anyone as too far gone. God can forgive every sin. Yet, nevertheless, this stands as a very real warning. Warning. 
Now, a quick aside, we need to mention, why is the Spirit so important here and not the Son of Man? That's a question that comes up. Why will a word against the Son of Man, who is Jesus, be forgiven, and against the Spirit, it won't? Well, we have to remember the context of this passage. This moment stands prior to the cross of Christ. Jesus, in referencing himself as the Son of Man, he still stands shrouded in some enigma, understandably veiled to the dim and sinful world as they seek to understand just who he is as the Messiah. So such misunderstanding at that point and time prior to the cross and resurrection of Christ didn't necessarily show the same hardness of heart that outright rejection of the obvious works of God's hand being done through His Spirit did. And not only were these Pharisees rejecting those works, but they were claiming that those works were in fact from Satan himself. And so these men, they reveal a level of hardness of heart that may give indication that they were close to or moved beyond a point of no return. They stood near the brink of being utterly given over to their sinful rejection of God such that God would no longer send His Spirit upon them to soften them. They would be guilty in this life and they would find no reprieve from that guilt either in the life to come. Now, as with all dealings of our sin and responsibility and God's sovereignty, there are mysteries here. But the warning is clear. We must not resist that which God is working. We need to be people open to seeing the truth. We must ask God to help us see it and receive it. And we need to align ourselves with His Son. For to do anything else is to set ourselves squarely against the living God of the universe. Lord, have mercy on us all. And indeed, that is what we all need, mercy from God. And that takes us to the second point. A heart that refuses Christ is evil within. We won't labor long here, but we must make plain what Christ does. Though the world tells us that we are all deep down good at heart, Scripture paints a very different picture. Romans 3 says, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Jesus says, when you do things such as speak against the Holy Spirit, do evil deeds, you don't do them as some temporary lapse of judgment. You do them out of the abundance of your heart. And that's true of all of us. Why is it that we have to train children not to hit to tell the truth, to be kind. But we do not have to train them to throw a punch, to throw tantrums, to shade the truth. They are experts at that. Why is that? When you stop to think about it, it really is very interesting. There's nothing in the material universe that says we should find it easier to be cruel than to be kind. And yet, all of us have to actively work against the cruel so often to express the kind. Well, the Bible's not confused by this, because the reality is we are corrupt to our core. We all have in our sin 
aligned ourselves with God. We've all had the heart that refuses Christ at one point or another. And it's out of that core that our heart speaks. So this heart disposition of the Pharisees, it's not just a passing issue, a minor blemish on an otherwise rosy record. It's the exposure of the rot that is deep within them. A rot that, again, we all share, all of us. If we do not have Christ, we will stand condemned on the day of judgment for each and everything that we have done. Even a simple careless word that hurt others, defamed Christ, or shaded the truth. Verse 36 reminds us of this. Every careless word we will be accountable for. Even that will be subject to judgment. Not to mention the times that we were outright cruel, deceitful, arrogant, harsh, abusive, and so on. We're actually going to spend time next week considering the concept of judgment as we read on in Matthew. So we won't dive into that now, but the warning is here for us to see. But in the midst of this warning, there is hope given. It says, by our words... We were justified, verse 37. Now, this does not mean Jesus is not saying our words or our good deeds save us, but it does give us hope for two things. One, it does mean that God will recognize those deeds that we do faithfully in his name by faith and trust in him. But deeper than that, we are told elsewhere that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. With our mouths, using our words, we declare the name of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we bring an end to the rot. If we want to change the core that's been showing its head from our youngest days, we can only do so through Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection and the forgiveness that he offers. And when we do this, he makes the tree good that it would bear good fruit. When we do this, our core is no longer dead in sin, but is cleansed and given new life in him that we might bear fruit. This is what these Pharisees needed. And they needed to be reminded of that. And this is what we all need as well. Yet the Pharisees persist in refusing to accept him. It takes us to the next point. The heart that refuses, sets itself against God, is evil within and is unappeasable. We look now at verses 38 to 42 where the Pharisees demand additional signs from Christ. We had a similar point to this a few weeks back when we talked about obstacles to faith. But it's good for us to reflect on it again so that we do not fall on the trap of demanding God prove himself to us above and beyond the all-sufficient ways that he has already done so. The Pharisees say to Christ in verse 38, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This is astonishing. What more could they possibly be wanting him to do? He's healed the lame, the deaf, and the blind. He's raised the dead, he's calmed the sea, he's, he's read the hearts and mind of men, the voice of God has declared over him his good pleasure, he's spoken with great authority, he's cast out demons, and much, much more. The, the Gospel of John says if all the works were recorded, the books on earth couldn't contain them of what the Lord had done. 
that these Pharisees, they still, they aren't appeased. And they aren't appeased because more signs are not what they need. And Jesus sees that. Their demand that he perform a sign is not the cry of one who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But the cries of one who says, I will never accept God on his own terms. I will keep moving the bar of validation. It's the heart that cannot be placated. It's the heart of unbelief. And it's a heart disposition that leads Jesus to call them a wicked and adulterous generation. Their hearts are far from him. Rather than repent and believe, rather than submit to God, they use these intellectual objections to resist him. Well, he says, no, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, which represents death here, so too the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? You're not going to get a sign. Not until the fullness has come and I've died and rose again from the belly of death just as Jonah was delivered from the belly of the whale. By refusing to play their game, Jesus reminds them they already have what they need. He says, I'm the sign that you are looking for. And then he uses these Old Testament illustrations to convict them of their unrepentance. He says, the men of Nineveh, a wicked, evil nation, repented when they heard the preaching of Jonah. Jeff read that for us earlier. The pagan queen of Sheba came to inquire of Solomon to hear the wisdom given to him from God. Both the Ninevites and the queen, these pagan people, will stand in judgment over you, Pharisees. This wicked generation, if you don't respond to and accept my coming, which is far greater than the words of Jonah and the wisdom of Solomon. These men had Jesus in front of them. These men should have needed no further sign. I'm reminded of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from the Gospel of Luke. Lazarus was a poor man in this life, treated poorly by a rich man. Lazarus died and went to be with God, and Abraham sighed. That's a whole other discussion. The rich man died and went to Hades. In Hades, the rich man cries out to Abraham, who he could see far off. And he asks, did Abraham have God send this poor man Lazarus back from the dead to go warn the rich man's brothers about the coming judgment? Speaking of the rich man's brothers, Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The parable saying, the rich man's brothers had the word of God. That is what Moses and the prophets are representing. And if they refuse to follow God after having been given his word, then even someone coming back from the dead won't reach their hearts. This is a telling indictment and one that speaks right to the Pharisees. They needed no further sign. They had the very words of God, the grace of God revealed through the scriptures. 
They were the people of God. They had enough to believe, to repent, to receive the coming Messiah, not even the sign of Jonah. Jesus Jesus Christ dying and rising from the dead was likely to convince them, since they had already rejected God's word, that they had received from Moses and the prophets. And in fact, that's what we see as a group on the whole. Even though that sign of Jonah did come, it didn't lead them to repent, but stood as further testimony to their hard hearts as they still refused Christ after he rose from the dead. What more sign could you want? They claimed to love God's word, But in practice, they rejected him and simply believed what they wanted to believe. This is an important warning for us, especially those of us who have had ample exposure to God through Christ. If we've read the scriptures and we've heard the gospel, yet demand proof from God that he exists, further proof from him before we will trust in Christ, we're We're not doing so because God has somehow left us without adequate representation. Remember, even the heavens declare His glory by their sheer complexity. No, we demand more proof because we don't yet want to believe. The heart that refuses is unappeasable. I myself can relate to this heart tendency. Though I have been a believer for most of my life, I went through a long and painful struggle with doubts and uncertainties about God. And in that struggle, I looked into just about anything and everything you could do to prove to myself that what I was believing was correct. Science, history, archaeology, astronomy, physics, theology, philosophy, basically any branch of apologetics, which is defense of the faith, I could get my hands on, I grabbed. And yet the funny thing was, no matter how many convincing truths I found, no matter how much everything pointed to God, and let me assure you, everything points to God and declares His reality, I could always find myself wanting one more proof. I had one more question that I needed answered, one more sign One more thing to affirm so that I could be completely at peace. And then slowly over time, the Lord revealed to me the problem was not with him or what he had given me. The problem was with me. And he actually used this story of Lazarus to help me. I realized I had more than enough just in the written word of God. And the revealed Christ and the soul-satisfying truth of the gospel to believe. And I did always believe, but I wasn't settled. I didn't need anything further from him. And until I was willing to turn to him in faith, I would never be appeased. I had to learn to trust him. Many people saw Christ do miracles, yet they rejected him. Not because they didn't have sufficient evidence, but because their hearts didn't want to believe. I had on my heart as I was preparing this to speak to any here who find themselves in that place. You've heard the gospel. You've read the scripture. You've seen the changes and the effects of Christ on those around you, perhaps even you yourself, but you find yourself on the fence. 
You feel unable to accept it. Part of you may even want to accept it, yet you're unwilling to take that step. I encourage you this morning to get off of the fence. Though there are piles of evidence that stand proclaiming the truthfulness of this book, of Jesus, of God, there's no more proof that you need than hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have been separated from the good God of the universe because of our sin and rebellion and that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins that we might be with him. We have to do nothing other than trust him. It's the news that makes sense of our broken world. It's the news that brings hope when nothing else can. All other philosophies fail where the gospel stands. Something greater is here, Jesus Christ. Accept him. And we end now with a final warning that the heart that refuses Christ, though it has encountered him, is vulnerable to greater attack. This last section about the demon being cast out, going through dry places, and returning with seven more, it's less about giving us some handbook on demonology, more about making a point. It's also less about individuals in this instance and more of a general warning Christ is issuing to this evil and faithless generation he's calling out. Christ has been going around casting out demons, healing diseases, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, speaking words of life. He has been cleaning up the house, if you will, sweeping it, putting it into order. Yet Christ makes clear, if one receives the benefits that he brings, if one experiences the graces that he offers, if one accepts blessings from his hand yet still refuses to welcome him into their hearts, they stand in great danger. When the old is gone, the new must come, or else the old will come back with a vengeance. I don't know exactly what all this looks like or what specifically the Lord is implying with the return of the seven other spirits, but he is certainly making it clear it is not good to turn from him when he's entered your life. At the very least, we know with increasing knowledge comes increased responsibility. When we've heard and seen and tasted, we now are not just accountable for our general sin and rebellion to God, but we are as accountable as well for rejecting his son. And such a hard-hearted rejection makes us more prone to spiritual vulnerability and manipulation, leading us prone to wander deeper into sin and hardness of heart. I think of the number of men and women who were raised in the church, who experienced the grace of a stable home life, the grace that comes with the values that God has established that, that are true to God himself. They live in the good benefit of those things, yet they deny the one whose hand has given it to them. We all are just like Israel. We want God to help us when things are a mess, but once he cleans up the mess, we forget about him. May it not be so. Remember whose hand it is that has delivered you. Don't accept the gifts, but reject the giver. All of this, all of these warnings culminate in this positive charge. Receive Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and enter the joy of his salvation. Now I want to add, God as we know is merciful and gracious. 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Though Thomas shouldn't have doubted and demanded to see the risen Christ touching his hands and his side, Christ was still gracious to him and revealed himself in that way. Though God could have struck Pharaoh down in his first opposition, he gave chance after chance for Pharaoh to repent. Though Peter could have gone the way of Judas, Christ did not allow Satan to lay claim to him. God knows these weaknesses of ours. He knows that we often do demand signs and we do look for more than what we need. And in his mercy, he often gives those things to us. These Pharisees even had been shown so much more than what they needed or deserved. That's the whole point. Yet, we must never suppose upon the grace of God. Scripture doesn't say, don't worry how you respond or behave. God will sort it all out. No, though God is gracious, we are called to repent and to believe and to do so today. In the book of Romans, Paul says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Unless we think this call is just for the unbelieving, Scripture says we must all guard our hearts against hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness that leads us away from God and perhaps shows that we never truly knew Him to begin with. I want to close with this from the book of Acts where Paul addresses the philosophical elites in Athens. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's our sign. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. But some men joined him and believed. Let us all be those who do not reject and mock or demand further signs, but who want to hear, who want to join with, and who believe in Christ Jesus for our good and to the glory and praise of God's precious name. Let's pray. Father, we are aware of our weaknesses. I would assume even those among us here who have placed their hope and trust in you and your son Jesus Christ can feel aware of our shortcomings and the ways in which we still persist in sin or the ways in which we still can question you or doubt you or fail to trust you in whatever form or fashion. Father, thank you that you are gentle with us. Thank you that you Tell us to be gentle with those who doubt. Thank you that you tell us to be gracious and merciful. Thank you, Lord, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But Lord, we ask, I ask on behalf of all of us that you would help us to be people who have hearts that receive Christ with joy and gladness. Remove from us hearts 
that reject. Help us to obey. Help us to delight. Help us to trust in you. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the way you use it to hold us fast to you. Thank you for the way you use it to draw others to you. And I pray that you do both of those things this morning through your word. Pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.